Welcome to the Healing Place podcast, a space filled with inspirational stories of hope, along with practical advice for your healing journey. Your host is Terry Welbrock, trauma warrior, writer, speaker, blogger, therapy dog handler, and founder of the Sammy's Bundles of Hope Project. As a survivor and a thriver, Terry's mission is to shine the light of hope into the world by interviewing insightful guests from across the globe. Please stay tuned at the end of today's interview as we honor our sponsors. The Healing Place podcast is a fiscally sponsored project of Fractured Atlas. Now, here's your host and trauma warrior, Terry Welbrock. Welcome, everybody, to the Healing Place Podcast. I'm your host, Terry Welbrock, and very excited to have with me today Michael Broussard. He is the founder of Ask a Sex Abuse Survivor, which started out as a one-man show about childhood sexual abuse, but it is now so much more. So welcome, Michael. Uh, I appreciate that. It's good to be here. It's good to be having a conversation with somebody who's coming from the same place. Yes. That, that connection, it makes it a richer conversation. For sure. We were just talking before hitting record about that, that street cred and um, survivors um, being able to talk about it from a survivor's perspective mm-hmm. and our own healing journey. Um, so yes, talk about what, what got you into this, where, where you're going with it and what you've been doing. Well, um, back in 2014, um, I had been in therapy for a number of years with a trauma-informed therapist. And that was a major change for me because I had given up on therapy many times and I didn't realize it was because I was with the wrong kind of therapist. I blame myself for failure. I should have healed. So I get into, into therapy with somebody who actually knows how to help me, who knows how to use EMDR and all these other things so I can reconnect with who I am. <clears throat> and we get to 2014. And we've, we've, we've diagnosed the bipolar disorder and the CPTSD and all these other things that I was dealing with. And I felt more centered in terms of I knew what I was, what, what my challenges were. And I knew a lot of coping skills that I learned in, in therapy. And I turned around to my therapist and I said, you know what I want to do? I want to do a stage show, like a play. And I want it to be interactive. I want to be able to have people be able to ask questions of me throughout the presentation and have that also drive the way I present so every time it's different and so every time we have a conversation about childhood sexual abuse and about healing and therefore we've done something important and something valuable and she looked at me she's like you're going to ruin everything you're going to destroy everything you're going to let people ask you questions please don't (laughs) and i said you don't understand dr blair i'm a theater artist this is how i process things, including how I process healing. So this is a great healing moment for me to say, I'm going to go do this on stage. And the questions, it is such an important thing for me to get people to discuss these things and to have survivors involved in that discussion, have non-survivors involved in that discussion. And with great trepidation, she said, okay, that's fine. And essentially, we developed a story in therapy from that point out that we developed the play and the way it was going to be framed and all that. And what I didn't know at the time was that the day that I went in to tell her about this, she was planning on telling me she was retiring. 
she she's like I get it. She's had a lot of a lot of um, a long career helping a lot of people. It was about time she retired. Good for her, right? She didn't say anything about retirement after she heard this. I never knew that she'd been planning to retire. She stayed on, oh. and I kept seeing her way past her retirement date without knowing it. And then she came to the show, and she sat in the front row, and I had that that rock of support. It was like my wife and my therapist, front row center. And it was amazing because that helped me give me so much strength to do what I wanted to do and to conduct the question and answer parts of the show in a way that was productive, um, in a way that actually got the conversation moving. And at the end, I got a hug from my wife, Christy, and I got a hug from Dr. Blair. And first performance, it worked exactly like I wanted it to work, which nothing in my life has ever done that. You got to just think 12 times, screw up 11, and then the 12th is good. This was like, bam, people are talking. Survivors are saying things like, we had a survivor who, she was sitting with her boyfriend, and he didn't know. And during one of the breaks, the feedback breaks, she talked about being a survivor. And that's when he found out. I mean, courage. Wow. I mean, just this idea of this conversation and this, this feeling in the room that we're all with each other. Yeah. Um, and we've had that ever since. And it's been so healing for me because I go up there, right? When I was developing the show, I was like, I would, I would, um, I would, you know, you talk to yourself. You're a theater artist. You talk to yourself. So I walk around the house talking to myself and I would, dig into something and find something and it would make me sad or it would trigger me and I would start crying or whatever. If it hurt, it went in the show. The thing about that, of course, is that I'm standing in front of a bunch of people. I hit something that I think is important to the show. It triggers me and it triggers me in front of 50 to 100 to 200 people. But from the first time this happened, Everybody was there for me. Strangers in the audience were there for me. And I never felt unsafe. Never. That's beautiful. And I, I think that's what we need. I think as survivors, that's what we need. One, you spoke to me on, on so many levels just now because in 2013, I started back to therapy with EMDR mm -hmm. and finally had a therapist that was trauma-informed and it was beautiful to mm -hmm. guide me along this healing journey. And, but one of the things that I found was when I started to put my vulnerabilities out there and saying in the middle of a grocery store parking lot, when I was feeling as if I was going to fall off the earth, mm -hmm. I'm having a panic attack to a stranger who then let me hold on to their arm to walk me to, into the store. That was a moment. That was a moment of just putting myself out there. And so you letting yourself have these, moments on stage in front of an audience i mean you're giving per people permission it's okay to feel these what these things it's okay um wow what a beautiful gift your courage in in dealing with a, a, a panic attack in public and actually letting someone know who you didn't know uh i'm so glad it turned out the way that it did um because that is courageous beyond courageous doing what you're doing now is courageous beyond courageous because you reveal yourself when you do interviews with people and as you said, it gives other people strength. 
it gives people permission, as you said, to feel the things they feel, to accept the fact that a panic attack is a real serious thing, to accept the fact that this anxiety is real, to not feel like you have to judge yourself according to a societal norm, which is don't, don't feel this. And if you feel it, don't tell anybody. Right. For God's sake, don't cry. You know, and that's, I think that's kind of what I, I, I really feel like I've been accomplishing more and more with the way things have expanded. Um, the whole pandemic thing comes down. All of a sudden I can't get on the road. I can't go to colleges and theaters and stuff and do my show because, you know, and I understand that because it's a serious situation. Right. I accept that. So what do I do now? Well, during the time before that, I had actually started doing a couple of different things. And one of the things I had done was I started recording videos tagged Ask a Survivor that were my daily experiences. And I've got something like 50, over 50 of them right now. And I started doing these little capsules of today I had a panic attack. Today um, I'm bipolar and I felt really positive because these three things happened. However, I have to watch things because that could lead into a manic episode. You know, all these little things. I even did one that day that you can't get out of bed. When you just can't get out of bed. When I would, ra- I would rather have climbed under it than got out of it. And I was like, I look like hell. I feel like hell. Am I going to make this public? Right. And I did. And I made a video. And just saying, you know what? It's okay. We, we have chronic conditions and it's okay to sometimes be there and sometimes be somewhere else and sometimes be stronger and sometimes be weaker. We've gone through, my God, this thing that could destroy somebody completely. And here we are. We're talking about it. We're looking for help. We're looking for those hands. We're taking those hands, supporting each other. I have people talk to me about that, that weird sort of like, victim survivor thriver thing yeah if it's some kind of you know aristocracy or something <laughs> you're at the bottom or you're at the top personally i feel that anyone who is out there trying to heal to me as a survivor you survived mm-hmm. yes you are also permitted to be a victim because you were victimized that's okay too and you know on some days even if you look at other people and go that person's amazing they're a thriver i could never be that there are days when you thrive. So we're all different things all the time, you know? And I think that giving people an example of that is so powerful. So I was doing the videos and I was trying to do different things and the pandemic comes around and everything locks down and you can't go anywhere. And I was like, wait a minute, how do I give the platform that I have to tell my story? How do I give that to other survivors? And it just was a natural to me, you know? Tell people we're going to do online events. You're going to be able to come on, answer questions if you feel like it. If you don't, don't. Talk about a little bit of your story. And these things have developed into mutually assuring and healing things while they're going on, not just with the people watching, but the different panelists. Yeah. They will take care of each other. They, we have like five and ten panelists on a show, and they will take care of each other. And they will go out of their way to take care of each other. And it's beautiful. You know? It is beautiful. I mean, it's, it's this, this amazing network of support. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wonderful. And I like trying to make those connections. The other thing, sorry if I'm interrupting, I apologize. Oh, gosh, no. Go. But the other thing we started doing is we do a, a, an occasional a group. And it's not, a, it's not a therapy group per se because we don't have a, we don't have a trained therapist in the group. It's one of those, uh, it's, 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 it's peer-to-peer support and we talk. 
and I thought this would be sort of a good idea. People have taken ownership of it. They love it. It's important to them. They feel like they, they, they look forward to it. it it's, it's wonderful to see that. And we've had a lot of groups where we all talk about what we're going through and how hard it is and how tough it is. Then we had one of the groups recently where somebody brought up the idea of positive triggers, positive triggers. She said, you know, in order to help myself heal, I look at the things that make me feel better and make me feel stronger. And I try to trigger those things on purpose. I used to dance. Well, I've gone back to dance class. I'm much older now, but I've gone back to dance class because I've taken that back and I can give myself a positive trigger. If there's something that makes you feel happy, if we can get triggered negatively, we can get triggered positively. And that whole group was like a cheerleading session. We got to the end of it and everybody was like, yes. <laughs> and we're so happy. It was so cool, you know? So that's been really, really helpful as well. And the other thing I'm doing is ask a survivor interviews where I bring on somebody like yourself, for example, who is turning their healing into, uh, into healing for other people who has, you know, gone through the fire and now they want to do something. And I interviewed Harold and Cecil of the It Was Me campaign. And uh, I've got one coming up with, uh, with Stevie Croissant of We Are Her, which is an amazing organization. It's the idea that we can talk about in these interviews. We talk about your motivations for what you do but we also talk about you as a survivor and we share. And so it's a very human thing. It's not just here. Now we're going to talk about the stuff that I do, uh, the initiatives that my organization has. We're going to talk about all of this stuff together. I mentioned Harold and Cecil earlier. They're a married couple and they're both survivors. And that was such a rich, amazing interview because we had a blueprint. What does that look like? How do you support each other? Yeah. What do you do? Beautiful. And that's the Would you idea. like to, to share your, your journey? Sure. Um, I've said since the beginning that I'm always willing to talk about uh, any part of my healing uh, and any part of the abuse I suffered because that's the point of what I do. I've made myself 100% public. It gets hard sometimes because there are people out there with agendas <laughs> and they come after you. But, you, you know, it's, I, I can't pretend it doesn't trigger me at times when people do come after me. But you know what? This is why I'm here. I'm here to be public and show everybody you can be public and be understood and be supported. Yeah. So way back when, uh, as, you well, as you know probably all, some of it, because I know you read that Huffington Post article I wrote. Yes. Um, I was, when I was six years old, I was happy. I was outgoing. I was fearless. I was just a silly little kid. I didn't have any insecurity. I had no, I didn't, I wasn't self-conscious in any way. I was just a kid who told stupid jokes and, you know, and liked to dance to, to like Sesame Street songs and stuff like that. I just, I, and the thing is about this, this kid is I say all these things. I've never seen, I don't have these things in here. These are reports from people around me who I grew up around. Yeah. I have no clue. I don't have any connection to it. Well, until recently, I had a little bit, so we'll talk about that in a second. But so all that got erased when I was seven years old, and my stepfather started sexually abusing me. And he was doing it at home, and he worked at the school, so he was doing it at the school. He was basically, he made it so I didn't have a safe place. There were no safe places. Because at school, if I wasn't getting abused by him, I was getting bullied. I was getting bullied because from the moment I started getting abused, I stopped talking. I looked down at the ground. 
I was terrified of people. Well, who are they going to go after in the playground? The kid who never talks. The kid who looks at the ground. And I grew up in a small town, which meant walking the streets, I was bullied as well because everybody knew me from school because they, they pick out little targets, and, you know, these are the ones. So the abuse that I suffered was horrifying. It was So there comes a point in your life where you get the talk and you learn about sex, right? Yeah. If you're lucky <laughs> or, or unlucky, depending upon the talk you get. And I learned about sex through being, and I'm going to use the word because saying words are important, through being raped by my stepfather. That's how I learned about sex. I learned that it was a terrible thing you did to somebody and it hurt. Horrifically. And this went on and on. And it was several over several years. And by the time I was out of it, I was already severely damaged. I was quiet. I was scared. I was insecure. Um, going into my mid to latter teens, I became massively agoraphobic. I basically didn't leave the house ever because I was so scared of everything in the world. Um, I had a big sign tattooed on my head because predators knew to come and get me, you know, when I was 12, 13, 14. They knew, I, you know what I'm saying? They know. And they know as an, and they know as an adult, too. Yeah. It's not, it's, 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 they know. Um, so I went through all of that, and I really didn't, I didn't have any friends. I didn't have any connections to people. Um, it was just me and my records and my comic books and my magazines and all that stuff. And Famous Monsters Magazine and the Sex Pistols and me. That was it. And so that's who I was for a number of years. The first time that I felt any connection to people, uh, other people as friends, was when I went to a Doctor Who convention in 1983. Because Doctor Who was one of the things that was my thing that I watched on TV. And, like, I, you know, the Doctor was amazing. He was a hero. He was incredible. I, like, looked up to him. He was, for a number of reasons, not the least of which was the fact that many of the stories that I was watching were about not judging people by appearances and trying to understand, trying to be deeper and understand. And so I'm not leaving the house. I can't leave the house. The guy who plays the doctor, you may not know it, but the doctor is played by a different actor every few years. Yeah. Looks entirely different than the last one um, because he's got a thing called regeneration and he's an alien and he can turn into somebody else. Um, the doctor I was watching on TV at the time, that actor, Tom Baker, he was at this convention in, uh, in Boston and I lived in Clinton, which was like an hour's bus ride away. And I really wouldn't have left the house except this guy had come over from Britain and I was like, this is my only chance to meet this guy who's my hero. And I actually dragged myself out and I went to the convention, which was terrifying to me. And I tried to look at the floor and I tried not to talk to anybody, but people at conventions are friendly and they talk to you whether you talk to them or not. And I eventually sort of got dragged into having friends. I had Doctor Who friends, you know? I was never able to share what I've been through, just the, the, the abuse or any of that with them because I, you know, people didn't talk about that. And I had been convinced by my mother, if you did talk about that, everybody would leave you in your life. So don't do that. Um, so for a few years I had that. And at some point during that, I met a Doctor Who fan who wanted to talk about the deep stuff, you know, life and consequences and the way things are and who cares about who and how you care. 
And after a while of talking to her, um, I got the guts up to actually tell her about the abuse and everything else. And I just was waiting for her to like walk out. And she didn't walk out. We were sitting together late at night talking and she just put her arms around me. And she held me and we both cried. Sorry. And it was an enormous moment for me because here was somebody who who accepted me still, even after they knew. And then on top of that, cared about it. Um, so that was a big thing for me. And that led, all that kind of stuff led to me being able to leave home, get away from the other kinds of abuse that my mother was, you know, piling on me, including sitting on me and trying to smother me at times. Mom was great. <laughs> Mom's confusing. Um, and I moved away and there were a lot of years that I was hanging out with people and I had friends, but despite that one time I talked to people, I didn't talk to people again for a long, long time. And there were decades of just trying to work it out and going to therapy back and forth and quitting therapy because I wasn't getting better. And obviously it was my fault because I should get better if I go to therapy. What am I doing wrong? And it wasn't until... 2006 um, when I got married and uh, my wife Christy she would see me tear myself apart you know you make a little mistake and the judgment comes down and the judgment I didn't realize was not mine at the time I didn't realize that allowed my abusers and my bullies and my nasty teachers and all these people and my mother to take up space in my head because I heard my voice in my head it took me a long time to realize that that wasn't my voice saying that. And uh, I would just tear myself apart. I mean, literally, I would bang my head against the wall. That's not a metaphor. That's a fact. Um, and I was hoping for blood. And that's a fact because I thought so little of myself. And I hated myself so much for being so weak. And she's like, I want to help you, but I don't know how. So will you for me try therapy again? And of course, I love her and, I, and our marriage is so important to me. So yeah, I went back to therapy. And that's when I started with a trauma-informed therapist. And we talked about EMDR, you know, at EMDR, which is incredibly helpful because it lets you be yourself, you know, young and, and your adult self and take care of yourself. We got all these diagnoses that I didn't know before. I found out I was bipo had bipolar disorder, which explained all of my depressive episodes and all of my manic episodes. I discovered that I have OCD. I discovered that I still have some degree of agoraphobia. I discovered that I had complex PTSD, which is such a multi-layered thing. Yeah. And we worked on coping mechanisms. What do you do when you panic? Well, you can't say you're not going to panic because you have a chronic condition. But what do you do when you panic? You know? And that led to me, all this therapy with my, with, with my, my therapist, Dr. Blair, led to me getting to that point. And that's like a capsule version of where I'm at. And now I'm now these days, my identity is very much uh, that of someone who wants to help and uh, who wants to support. And so all these things that I'm doing now, I mean, to me, they're everything led naturally to this moment, you know, wow. you know? Yeah. Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you for sharing that because um well, you could see I was wiping a tear away. Yeah. It, it, it gets tough. <laughs> yeah, it's just such a profound level. But again, 
I just admire your courage for, for being willing to put it out there because I know there are people who are listening um, who are saying, oh my God, me too, um, that may have never, never been able to say that out loud before. Um, so yes, beautiful. And, and, and thank you for finding your path in, in this thriving journey and sharing it with others. I mean, just, wow, again, what a gift. I appreciate, I truly appreciate that. I, I, I have been very fortunate to get some very wonderful feedback from the people that have, uh, that have benefited from the things that I do. And I can't say enough, enough nice things about these people because they're reaching beyond their own yeah. damage. And they're saying, well, you know, you help me. And as my wife Christy keeps saying, and my therapist keeps saying, I have a new therapist now. And as many of my fellow survivors keep reminding me, there will be people that you will help that you will never meet and never know anything about. Yeah. You know? And I have been helped by people who may never know that, I, that they helped me because they happened to say something in a video or something and it just turned my mind over. I was, oh my God, that's fantastic. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, to know that we can do this, it's so very much important and one of the things i want to do first of all I'm, I'm trying to put together an online version of the ask a sex abuse survivor show i did it once on facebook but i want to do something that's a little more involved that's closer to the live thing but i want to get that out there because i want to have help those conversations happen that way um i want to do and i haven't put together the curriculum yet but i want to do a series of workshops about telling your story because if I've been telling it since 2014, maybe I know something. I don't know. And I'll write it down. <laughs> I'd say you probably know a thing or two, yeah. <laughs> well, the hard thing is like, you know, this is my number, my number one thing in the very beginning, once I do this workshop, is going to be, before you get started, I have a question for you. Do you have a trauma-informed therapist? Because if you're going to dig this stuff up, it's going to need processing. And there's no shame in that. I'm not giving you advice. I'm telling you my experience. That's always been my thing. I don't give people advice. So like this is this is what I've went through. You've got to have some kind of support system because I believe because if you're going to dig into your 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 journey, you're going to dig up things which are going to trigger you, are going to make your life difficult. They're going to be things you haven't processed yet. So that's one thing that I think happens with a lot of survivors who go out to tell their stories, and they only do it like once or one and a half times, and they get discouraged they you know because they don't have a support system and i have a massive support system i have all these people on the internet who are who who seem grateful for what i do and i've got my wife and i've got uh, i've got my best friend who was also my tech director who used to drive me around to shows and let me tell you something about about that okay so this guy his name is sticks latte no that is not his born name his real name is martin coffee which makes Sticks latte even better um before I met him, you know, he's been a sound tech for many, many years. He does, you know, audiovisual stuff and all that stuff. And he was working at, a, at a, a venue that I use a lot. And I was looking for a new tech director. And uh, I got to know him and he seemed really friendly and easy to work with. Then we got on the road. <laughs> and he was not at that point a Doctor Who fan. And he was looking at me to like, well, what should I watch? And I would say, I'll put these contracts for, you know, because 
like you do, saying you're going to service tech, you're going to service driver, here's what you're getting paid. Da, da, da. He made me write into the contracts that we'd watch Doctor Who in the hotel room after every show. <laughs> and he, got, he was totally pulled in by it. And then he starts talking to me after these shows. He's like, so I get in a car with my best friend. We go driving. We go to a college or something. I hear the worst, most trauma-inducing story I've ever heard in my entire life. Then we go back to the hotel and watch Doctor Who. And he's like, you know, and it took a while for him to say this. He, he said, I need to talk about my trauma. Oh. And he said, somebody gave me advice once that if you don't deal with your trauma, your trauma deals with you. And I thought that was beautiful. He got the courage to start talking about the trauma that he'd experienced because he was doing this. And that has been so beautiful to see, you know? Yeah. So to have that start with this friendship and artistic collaborator thing, then flip over into this trauma bonding thing, which is a positive trauma bonding thing, not the negative one. It, it was a, an amazing experience. And I, feel, I, I find that so much that people will come up to me and go, oh, by the way, I saw your show and yeah, you know, or here's my favorite. My friend Patty, who I'd known for years, comes to see Ask a Sex Abuse Survivor, comes up to me afterwards and says, well, I'm not a survivor myself, but I just realized after watching this, I probably know about two dozen of them. She's like, what do I do to be available to them? What do I do to be supportive of them? And I thought that was just the most wonderful thing for someone to say. But she's that kind of a person. Yeah. She's like, how can I help my friends? And that's so very true. I've had, oh my gosh, so many people since putting my truth out into the universe, come to me and say, usually with through private messenger or through a text or a phone call, say, I've never told anyone this before, but I've never said this out loud before, but, and then gone on to describe their trauma and what they had endured. Um, and I love it that, that they found the courage through me or through this show, through guests such as yourself to talk about it. Because that's the first step onto the healing journey. It really is to start to own the fact that you have this trauma. Yeah. And also, I think it's very important to realize that the trauma doesn't define you. You are not the trauma. Right. You are someone who experienced trauma, but you are not the trauma. And that is, I say that like I always feel that way but I go back and forth. I can tell people these, these things I've experienced and you know how this has helped me, that's helped me. But there are times when I'm in the same place as somebody else over there, you know? And, and I think that that's another thing with survivors that sometimes ends up being discouraging. You have somebody say to you, well, I was working and I was healing and everything was going great, but now I found myself back five steps back to the same place I was two months ago, you know, being triggered by the same stuff. I said, it doesn't work that way. Healing is not, it's a journey, but it's not a journey along a straight road. And you're not going backwards. You're just building up and building up and building up. Even if like you thought you, you, thought you took care of this. Well, you know what? You, the notion that you can have this trauma that is so deep and you just took care of it. Right. That's what people who haven't been to trauma thinks happens, you know, and people, and they convince people who are traumatized that this is what it's supposed to be. And they make them feel bad. 
Yeah. I'm still traumatized. I still have a hard time sometimes and have great, I feel strong at other times, you know? Yeah. And I think, I think that's where the true healing lies is, is that when you know, you've, you've really made progress. I know I, I have a, have always had a horrific fear of open spaces and we recently moved um, to South Carolina and I was, I had the dog out on a walk and was walking along a pier and saw a big, beautiful blue bird. And I thought, oh, I'm going to take a picture of this bird. So I started to walk out the pier and I was trying to sneak closer, sneak closer, sneak closer and got the picture and thought, wow, that's really cool. And when I turned my head to realize I'd gone out much further than I'm normally comfortable with, my instant reaction, I threw my hands over my fist and I ducked and I was in, almost in a crouch down position. And where in the past that would have totally freaked me out, I sat with my hands on my hips and thought, well, son of a gun, that's fascinating. Where mm -hmm. is that coming mm -hmm. from? What was that? Now, I obviously know what it was correlated to. And so that just means I have some more work to do. Mm -hmm. But I, what a powerful, powerful moment that was to, to catch it and pause. As my therapist used to say, just notice. And I did. Mm -hmm. I just noticed. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, uh, that is so powerful. That is so, and it's so familiar, you know, to, to, to just notice, to, um, to see things on a different level than I saw them in the past. Yeah. Um, my therapist now, she, she, she thinks I'm hilarious because like you come in and you say, I'm having a depressive episode or I'm having a manic episode or my OCD is really high today. She's like, my patients come in and they say, God, life sucks. You come in and say, oh, I'm having a manic episode. I'm a little worried about it. <laughs> and it, it comes from, as you're saying, you get this, it's progress when you can recognize things, even if you can't stop them, even if you can't mitigate them, it's progress that you can recognize them. Yes. And I, as you know, a loner, a survivor who like a lot of us were loners, I was in my head a lot. So I'm pretty well trained in thinking about what I'm going through. I may not have had the answers, but you know what? I'm pretty self-therapy. I'm pretty good at it. You know? So I look at these things and I see, like you're saying, this moment happens and you're like, okay, what is this? What do I do? Yes. I recognized it. Oh my God. I saw it in that same vein. Dissociation. Yeah. Dissociation. Okay. Oh, dissociation. So, yeah. That was my yeah. MO. <laughs> Right. I, I, my, my mind left my body because if my mind had not left my body when I was a kid, I would not be here today. Right. I could not have done that. But then I trained myself to do that all the time. Even when there wasn't stress, I was doing it. So I'm in a wonderful, loving marriage and Christy is talking to me and she's been talking for 15 minutes and I have no idea what she said because my brain went, it's gone. It's up there. I learned to recognize that that was happening, not all the time, but a lot of times. And now I have this image. My mind is a balloon floating away. And I go, oh, I dissociate it. Grab the <laughs> string, put it right here. And Christy and I also came to an agreement that I can say to her without consequence. I dissociated. I'm sorry. Would you please repeat that? And she knows now it isn't disrespect. And I know now that I have the safety of being able to say that to her. And that's a level of, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's incredible. Wonderful. I love it. Well, to take a left turn for just a second. Uh, so 
a lot of talk about adverse childhood experiences and ACEs, and I love it that this is just coming to the surface and so much mm -hmm. work is being done around this and resilience is a big part of it. Did you have, obviously your mother was not a source of no. uh, that one caring adult. Did you have that one caring adult? Did you have a source, a teacher or anyone in your life? I say I sort of did. Um, I had my grandmother, my mother's mother. Um, and right. And when I would go see my grandmother, my grandmother uh, showed love with cookies, candy, ice cream, all this stuff, right? Yeah. And which is why I haven't eaten, and I don't blame her for it because she was being loving, but I have bulimia now, but that's a whole separate issue. But um, she loved me unconditionally and she treated me like I was like the greatest kid on earth whenever I was visiting her. I didn't get to do it enough, but that was a place where I felt safe at the time. The other thing was I had an aunt who I was able to talk with as I got into my latter teens. And again, we didn't talk about abuse. Never. Because you didn't talk about that. The family said, no, shut up. We talked about books and movies and life and politics and all that. So the interesting thing about these two things is that, and my grandmother was that for me when I was little. But as I got older, she wasn't that for me anymore. Because I became this depressing, inwardly turned child. I grew hair down across my face because I didn't have to look at anybody or they couldn't look at me. Um, I found out from my aunt Jill, who was the person that I was able to talk to at some points, that my grandmother, her mother, had reacted unsupportingly, unsupportively, unsupportingly, unsupportively, how about that word? Um, when my aunt Jill had come to her and said, my older brother is sexually abusing me. Oh. And her mother, my grandmother, the one who loved me so much, at the time said to Jill, you're lying. He would never do that. Basically, he's the golden child. And she sent my aunt away to a, an institution with a warning not to talk about family business. Now, my perspective on that is I remember that Jill went away to college. She did not go away to college. Then she came back and she kept her mouth shut about family business. Well, as an adult, I find this out from her that she was abused. I find from her that the way her mother, my loving grandmother, reacted to her and treated her I find that my loving grandmother as a child was also sexually abused. I find out from Jill that my mother was also sexually abused as a child, um, <clears throat> where my mother was not at all supportive. She was at the same time dealing with absolute internal chaos. And I don't think that makes it okay to scream your child down and sit on them and try to smother them. I don't think that makes it all right, but I understand it better. Let's just say that. I'm also of the belief that given what I, when you get involved in therapy, you read all this stuff about psychology and psychiatry. I'm pretty sure my mom was schizophrenic. She had some of the primary signs. She, she went catatonic at times um, and you couldn't wake her up for like hours. She just like staring, you know? Um, but uh, yeah, there's all these layers where you look at this person, like you said, who's your safety? But that person treated their child horribly. Yeah. I still don't know how to reconcile that between my loving grandmother and my grandmother who sent my aunt away to a, a mental institution when she was a kid. What do you do? Right. What do you do with that? What do I do with the fact that when I was very little, I was an early reader. And so my mom was my best friend because we would share books. She'd hand me books when she was done with them. And we talk about the books. 
but is this the same woman who screamed and yelled and beat me up? Is this the same woman who handed me back to my abuser over and over again? So it went on for several years after she knew what he was doing. I told her exactly what was happening and she handed me back to him over and over again. But she was an abuse survivor. What do you do with that? Do you have any idea? Cause I don't know. Right. What do you do? Yeah. I, I mean, I know from my own personal journey when my mom's one year sober at 84 years old and, um, I mean, the, from her alcoholism, and it was just horrific living with her as a, as a child. And once I took a step back, I remember standing at the end of the hospital bed a year ago, and I finally, I finally just looked at her from a totally different, instead of from my own perspective, from hers, and said, Mom, why don't you talk to me about what happened to you in your childhood? And... Once she started opening up and my sister was standing next to me, the three of us were all crying. She finally started to release it and, and explain to us the things that my, again, my darling grandparents that I adored, things that had happened to her at, at their hands. Um, and everything shifted in that moment for me mm -hmm. at least, because mm -hmm. I thought, okay, this wasn't so much about her hurting me as her trying to survive her trauma. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it is, yeah, yeah. It's, it's difficult. What you said about it wasn't about hurting me, it was about her trying to survive her trauma. That hits me, I mean, square, <laughs> square in the chest. This is the question. This, these, these are the... the the, the feelings that I have there on so many different levels. Yeah. Um, my mom passed some years back. Uh, she had cancer. And I, we had been estranged <laughs> for many, many years because I just couldn't take it anymore. Um, at that point, the last time I had seen her previously was when I was home visiting at Christmas time and I was at a Christmas party at my sister's house. And my mom had tried to tell me that my sister was from the devil and she was the one that screwed up the family. I'm like, you're in Ruthie's house, and she's not. So those are two things you should consider. When I said she wasn't, my mom hip-checked me into the wall and then ran outside and didn't see her again. This is my mom. Yeah. So we were, we were not talking for a very long time. And then I went up to visit her when she was in the hospital. And what I didn't realize was her deathbed. And we hadn't talked in a long, I mean, decades. And she's lying there and she's, you know, she's in bed, she's in the hospital, she's kind of zonked out, her, her, she's got lymphoma, so she's, she used to be this big, like, robust, heavy woman with rosy cheeks, and she's like wasting away, you know? Yeah. And I'm like, and, and I, I came in and my sister was like, we'll give her some time with mom, and I'm standing there looking at her, and I tried to say something to her, and she suddenly out of the blue said, I'm sorry. Wow. And I, all my life, I had waited for my mother to tell me she was sorry, to prove that she understood anything she had put me through, anything I had gone through, all the damage that had been done, to just say I'm sorry. And I'd waited for those words. But in that moment, with my mom lying there in that bed, I found myself saying, you have nothing to apologize for. You did the best that you could. Oh. I love you and you did the best that you could. 
Oh. And it was not long after that that um, they decided there was nothing else they could do for her. So they were either going to send her home or they were going to send her to a hospice. And at that moment, she died, basically, when the, while they were trying to make up make the decision. And I still didn't know at that point that she was a survivor. I found that out after her passing that she was a survivor. I got all these stories from my aunt afterwards about my aunt's abuse, about the fact that, that my mom had been abused, about my grandmother being abused, about all these things. And it's just... I do care for her. I do care for my mother. And this is going to be a hot button moment. Um, forgiveness. Yeah. There are people who will tell you, you can't heal unless you forgive. There are people who will tell you, if you forgive, you'll never heal. And everything in between. My feeling about that is, it's up to the survivor. What's yes. going to help you? And you're the only one who knows what's going to help you or not help you. So, Amen. right. And I have not forgiven my abuser. And I don't plan on forgiving my abuser. And I don't think it's inhibited my healing. However, someone else in the same situation, it could inhibit their healing. So I support whatever decision they make. I essentially forgave my mom, at least vocally, at her deathbed. So she passed knowing that. I don't know. From day to day, I feel empathetic toward her or I feel frustrated and angry with her. And I think that'll be the rest of my life. And forgiveness is such, it's such a, a sticking point sometimes in our community. I mean, how do you feel about the whole forgiveness thing? I personally have worked very diligently <laughs> on the forgiveness part of it. And but I, I practice Ho'oponopono Hawaiian healing, which is a forgiveness exercise. Yes. I've written letters to all of my abusers and burned them, sending that energy into the universe. But I still think some of it lingers. I don't mm -hmm. know if I've reached full forgiveness <laughs> because <laughs> every now and then, I mean, some of them I really true, do, truly do feel like, all right, I've let them. I have found forgiveness with them for whatever reasons, but there are some that I think I've reached it. And then I, like we talked about, you know, a while ago, um, five steps back and then I got right. here again. Mm -hmm. And I said, Oh, maybe I didn't, maybe I didn't forgive that person. <laughs> yeah. And I think, but I think forgiveness is a journey. It's a part of the healing journey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how that manifests for each person is, is different. Yeah. And in my case, I think if I had forgiven my stepfather, if I had dumped, go, gone that direction with my journey, that would have hurt me. That would have, that would have slowed me down. Um, there's a thing. Survivors, there's this concept of the perfect victim, okay, when it comes to adult or childhood sexual assault. Um, you know, well, the person has to have fought back and the person has to have, you know, not had drunk any alcohol and the person has to have forgiven their abuser and the person has to have blah, blah, blah. The fact is that there's no such thing as the perfect victim or the perfect survivor. And each one of us, we have a right to the anger that we have, which does not say, I don't think people should consume themselves in anger. Right. But 
too often, I think we as survivors deny ourselves the right to be angry. And there's no way to process that anger if we just deny it. Yeah. Um, I was much more angry when I was in my teens. And you give me five seconds alone in a room with that guy, and it would have been over for him. Yeah. Um, the only thing that stopped me is that m morally, ethically, I'm a pacifist. And that made me feel really bad about feeling like I wanted to do something to him violently because I'm like, but you're a pacifist and you hold these beliefs. What's wrong with you? What is wrong with you? But we get angry and it's understandable to be angry. And at times the anger may come back or the frustration may come back or the sadness may come back. It's okay to feel. Yeah, we're allowed. We're allowed our anger. Right. Yes. We're not going to, they want, they want us to be all be sort of like, well, you know, um, it happened to me and I've forgiven everybody. And um, why would I be angry? I mean, they didn't do it on purpose, right? Right. <laughs> there was a choice. There was a choice. And I, I believe that very strongly that I don't care whether you are, you know, psychologically, you know, a pedophile. There's a choice whether to act on that or not. And you made that choice. And therefore, I have no problem with being angry with you for doing that. Right. I did have an interesting conversation that really kind of made me just shift a little in my perspective on that. Mm -hmm. In that uh, one of my perpetrators, I was involved in two bank robberies and um, oh one, of the, one of the assailants had held a gun to my head, stabbed my coworker mm. three times, and then came back three months later because he wasn't caught and murdered my coworker. Oh my God. shot her dead. So when in my forgiveness journey with him, um, I had, I remember thinking to myself, okay, we were both born these two innocent little creatures, these little babies. Mm -hmm. And somewhere along the line, he chose to go down this path. And the conversation that I had had with, with someone who runs a, the compassion prison project was, um, as, as we came around on, on this topic was it wasn't so much that he chose it as, as he was funneled because of his circumstances, because of um, so much that had gone on in his life. It was as if, as if he didn't have a choice. Now, I'm not making excuses for him, but I'm saying, or his choice was very, very narrow and he didn't see any other way than that mm -hmm. path. And so again, when I, when I take a step back and look at it outside of its impact on me, um, I'm able I'm able to take a look at that and say, okay, and that helps a little bit with my forgiveness mm -hmm. part of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I respect that 100% because you are coming from who you are spiritually and emotionally and mentally, and you're doing the things you need to do, and that having that particular point of view, being able to explore it in that way is what's helping you. Right. And I meant that what I said before, I'm, I respect everyone's way to heal. I really hundred percent do. And so I respect very much what you've done. And it's amazing actually what you've done. And it's very inspirational. All the things you've talked to me about um, on a sort of next door uh, topic. Uh, Cause we're talking about uh, predators and pedophiles and compulsion. Um, I've had people say to me, well, they made a mistake and they served their time. Therefore they should be let out. Well, uh, let me talk to you about this for a second. They have a compulsion. They have a compulsion that there is no proven psychological psychiatric cure for. 
I thought I had this thought in my head, not based on, uh, you know, academic knowledge, but based on personal experience and the experience of survivors I knew, but I didn't know whether it was true actually scientifically. I was on a panel at University of Penn after I'd done my show and they put me on the panel with like the head of the psychiatry department and a family therapist. I'm sitting on this panel and the people in the audience keep asking me questions that really should go to the experts. And I was like, okay, fine. And somebody said, well, is there a cure for these pedophile predators? And I said, you know, I can't tell you whether there is or there isn't, but I can tell you in personal experience, I have not seen one turn, you know, I've not seen one become healed and stop doing it. They do it as long as they're not in prison or somewhere else or being locked up somewhere else. I said, however, that's me with my own personal prejudices or whatever. Talk to the guy from the psychiatry department. And he said, no, there is no cure for pedophile predators. So as empathetic as I may be, to me, it's a separate issue. You want yeah. to protect children and protect adults. Until we have a cure, these people need to be taken out of the stream. And either, whether it's an institution or it's uh, a prison or whatever, they need to be taken out of the stream because this is something I do know scientifically, statistically, that uh, predators have an average of 50 to 100 victims in their lifetime. 50 to 100 children that are going to get permanently damaged. I think that's worth putting them away until we can safely let them out. And I don't have any problem with that whatsoever. And you're talking about to one of the most liberal people you will ever meet, who believes in the rights of the accused, who believes in giving people a second chance. There's a huge difference between somebody who, you know, drove the car in a teenage liquor store, you know, hold up, and somebody who abused one child after another child, and who will abuse another child and another child. And this is something I think that the justice system needs to understand. They don't understand the crime or the victim in many cases. There are lawyers, cops, judges, all these people across the board, not everybody, but a large number of people in the justice system have no proper understanding of the crime, no proper understanding of its impact, and no proper understanding of the victim survivor. And that's why they make the decisions that they do. And that's when they say things like, say things like well, he served two months, let him out, he served his time. Or we don't believe you. Well, why don't you go look at the psychology of victims of these crimes and the way it makes them speak and move and act? Um, and you'll see all the signs when you, yeah. and you'll know we're telling the truth. Yeah. Because we see them. We see them every day. We know. I look at so That's a survivor. Do you remember um, the Leaving Neverland thing? Okay. So before that came out, um, I got... Uh, contacted a bunch of male survivors and I got contacted to come up for a screening up in New York city. Um, and Oprah was going to be there and, and Jay, James Safechuck and Wade Robeson were going to be there and all this, you know, that thing is like, it's three, it's like three parts. It's like huge, incredibly long. And we sat down to watch, thank God they gave us breaks and we all brought support people with us. And still it was, it was just, you know, and I watched this thing and I'm like, my God, these guys are 100% telling the truth. This happened to them. I know. I know by the way he moved his head. I know by the way he let his hair fall this way. I know like by the sound of his voice. I know like by the way he moved his shoulders. We all know. And after the whole thing was over, there was After Neverland, which was the special they were taping with us, and out come Wade Robeson and James Safechuck. And I'm in the front row, which means I'm about maximum six feet away from them as they walk up to the stage. And I went, yeah, it happened. And then they started talking. I was like, mm-hmm. It happened. It's not a mystery. 
all of these signs are there. We need expert testimony during these trials from people who can look at the witness, the victim, the survivor, and say they're telling the truth because they display all of the signs. Yeah. Well, and that's why I say, I think it's amazing that ACE's science is just growing, oh like it's growing because that's exactly it. Yeah. Beautiful. All right. So anything else that you wanted to touch upon before we close out for today? Um, I just like to really quickly say that um, if you want to tell your story through Survivor Stories Online or get involved in any of the initiatives that we're doing, um, you can find us on Facebook at Ask a Sex Abuse Survivor. You can find us on Instagram at Ask a Sex Abuse Survivor. You can find our website, sexabusesurvivor.com. And honestly, I would welcome your involvement because we are a community and our community gets stronger every time someone tells their story. Wonderful. Beautiful. Well, I want to thank you for diving deep because we did. We dove into some, some deep <laughs> subjects and uh, and for honoring my perspective. And I certainly honor yours and you. uh, your journey as well. It was it was a wonderful experience. Thank you. I, I, this this is this is going to be a good day from here on out. So thank you very much. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, everyone, thank you so much for joining us today on the Healing Place podcast. And until next time, remember, be gentle with yourself. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening today to the Healing Place podcast with your host and trauma warrior, Terry Welbrock. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about Terry, her mission, and the Hope for Healing journey, visit Terry's website at www.terrywellbrock.com. Thank you for liking, commenting, sharing, and offering your reviews on our YouTube channel, audio outlets, and Facebook page. And as Terry reminds us, until next time, remember, be gentle with yourself.